We've been in a series called Seven Things That Christians Believe That the Bible Just Doesn't Say. And so this is week four out of seven. And today I want to talk about the idea and the belief that you must be born again to be saved. And that all unsaved people will go to hell. Now, I, I think such a topic and such an entire series deserves maybe some explanation. Why is this series important? Why are these topics important to spend, to spend time thinking about? First of all, because it affects your image of God, who God is and how we introduce him to others. I'm going to give you just, this isn't our church, this is my personal observation and opinion. It's an unfortunate reality that many who claim to be, quote, Christian, are actually some of the meanest, angriest, most divisive people in our communities. In my view, much of this is due to a self-righteous attitude towards individuals who don't believe the way they do. And I, I consider myself a Christian, by the way. Their adherence to the certainty of a particular biblical interpretation lends itself to creating tribes. A we, they, a we, the saved, the born again, the they who are on the outside. This in turn often degenerates into dismissing the transcendent, unsurpassable value of every human. Why is it important to critically examine the new birth? Because many individuals have either left their faith in God or have intentionally shunned a relationship with Jesus because of the legalistic, condemning, evangelical interpretation of who God accepts and who he loves. Much of what I'm called to do and what Genesis Gathering is all about is because of this concern. So here's our thought for today. You must be born again to be saved. Is that true? All unsaved people will go to hell. Is that true? Or does the Bible perhaps offer us some different views and alternatives to that? I'm going to, def I'm going to define four specific issues right now. We're going to dissect four thoughts and belief values. Number one. Let's define what born again means. Here's the New King James Version, which we're most familiar with. I would say most evangelical Christians could quote this verse. John chapter 3, verse 3. Let's look together. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what I'm going to do is read that to you again including a couple of verses before, starting in verse 1 of that chapter, and all the way through verse 7 of that chapter, all right? Now, Jeff is going to show you some color coding. Look at this. I'm going to break the, the, verse down, the verses down for you and read them in smaller segments, but I've color coded them, and I've done this for a reason, because I want to tie specific words back to a definition, an explanation of what being born again means. All right. 
So here we go with verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can, here's his perception. Here's the religious perception that he's offering Jesus. No one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless, look at it, God is with him. Verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born from above... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from above. Now, let's look again at the entire passage that I've just read with its color coding. That will be over on the left of this screen. I believe it's my right here. And I want to tell you what specific words mean now. First, born again. It is not in the Greek language born again, as in born a second time. It's the word born from above. Now that makes all the difference in the world. The word see and enter. Look at the text, it's in blue. See and enter. Unless you're born from above, you will not be able to see or enter. The perception is, well, then I'm on the outside. It keeps me from going to heaven, is the translation in our minds. But it doesn't say that, does it? Does it say you won't go to heaven? Look at it. No, it says you won't see and you won't be able to enter. Now, that in the Greek original language means perceive, discern, or connect. It's not talking about a geographical location that we're going to go to. It's talking about our perception, our awareness of the kingdom. Then verse, uh, uh, verse 5 is where Nicodemus comes back to him. I believe it's verse 5, verse 4. And he says this, how can a person be born a second time. Do you see what's going on? Nicodemus completely understand, uh, misunderstands what Jesus has said. Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I'm not talking about a second time. I'm talking about a completely different beginning. The Swiss theologian Friedrich or Friedrich Godet said this, quote, Nicodemus doesn't understand the difference between a second beginning and a different beginning. Both born again and see and enter phrases here in John's Gospel chapter 3 have suffered gross misunderstanding due to the meaning that's assigned to them. Here's the New Century Version. 
of verse 3. You cannot be in God's kingdom. Here's the Living Bible, very popular in the 70s and 80s, the Living Bible translation, and uh, really swept the evangelical world here in America by storm. Here's its translation. Unfortunate. Unless you are born again, not born from above, so there's the first mistranslation, you can never get into the kingdom of God. It implies that unless you're born again, this sort of mystical spiritual experience, you can't go to heaven. Now that very understanding was misapplied, mistranslated, and it was run with by the evangelical world. What Jesus is dealing with here in his response to Nicodemus is what Nicodemus brought to him in the first place. A perception. That's the entire context we find in verse 1 and 2. Jesus is giving Nicodemus an answer to his skewed religious perception of God's presence of the kingdom. He's not talking about something you have to do or experience or, you know, go through the steps one, two, three in order for you to get to heaven. He's talking about an awareness. He's not talking about a second instance. He, he's talking about, rather, a second beginning. Not a second Beginning, but a different beginning. Let me rephrase that. It's not being born. So Nicodemus says, how can I enter? How can a person enter back into his mother's womb and be born again? See, a, a, a second beginning. Jesus says, no, you misunderstand. I'm talking about a different beginning. You need both water and spirit. You need both a natural birth, but you need an awareness. Hello? You need a new birth here so that you can be aware of God's presence and God's kingdom on the earth. May I make a statement to you? You don't receive Jesus into your heart. He's already received you into his. We're going to let that settle. Just kind of. When my wife cooks, sometimes she cooks a, a stew. She just lets it, yeah, once every 10 years. Yeah, we, we had it five years ago. Sonia, you, you cook, yeah? You cook? Yeah, you like to cook. You, you've let things marinate and said, so chicken or meat that you're going to put on the barbecue, a lot of times you marinate that first for, for you know, a couple of hours. Yeah, and it changes the taste. It, see, when you let something sit and marinate inside you, it will change your perception. Jesus said, Nicodemus, look, you've got it all wrong. I, I'm not calling about, talking about a, 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 a second beginning. I'm talking about a different beginning. And it comes by understanding you don't have to receive me into your heart. I've already received you into mine, which leads us then to the second thing I want to define. Let's define salvation. Because again, we've been taught, you can't be saved unless you're born again. Well, what do you mean saved? I'm going to give you three aspects or realities 
to the one word saved or salvation. Number one, first, prior we were saved, according to scripture, prior to the foundation of the world. And everybody was included. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. When did he do it? Before the foundation of the world. Say it out loud. When did he do it? Say it. Before the foundation. When were you saved? Before the foundation of the world. That's aspect number one. Number two. Humanity is included in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We're not outside of that. This isn't an experience you need to go get. You don't say the magical words, follow the three steps, and you go get saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling those who go to church, not counting their sins against them. Somebody ought to be yelling out, no, no, it doesn't say that. Let's try it again. In Christ, God was reconciling those who pray the prayer, not counting their trust. Somebody ought to be yelling out, stop, that's not the right reading. Oh, I see. Well, so why has it been preached that way? In Christ, God was reconciling those who change their moral behavior, repent, go forward in a service, accept Jesus into their heart, and then start living the right way and start going to church. Not counting their trespasses. No, it doesn't say that, does it? That would be a misappropriation of the passage. That would be assigning to it meaning that it doesn't have. Could it be we've done that with the whole concept of being born again? Let's read the passage. Ready? It's on the screen. One, two, three, read. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against him. Let me ask you a question. If he's not keeping track of people's sins, how come you do? Oh. Let me, I'm going to get a drink. We're going to let something marinate there. Just let it marinate for a minute. Oh, you're not listening to me. If he reconciled the whole world to himself, how did he do it? When did he do that? Christ's coming, his birth. Christ's life on the earth. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. And who was included in that? The whole world, it says. And what was the result of it? He forgot your sins. You know, confession time ought to look a lot different than it does for all of us. Quit getting out your moral list of your mistakes and telling God, you know he already knows. <laughs> I've stopped confessing or telling God, which is not what the word confess means, my list of failures. And I've started agreeing with God, which is what the word confess means in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins. That doesn't mean tell God your sins. It means agree with God. What do you do when you get on your knees? Lord, 
man, it's been a rough week. I've blown it a bunch, and you already know, so let's not rehearse it. <laughs> so, Father, I just agree with you. I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and I thank you for the power to live above this because it doesn't look like you. We used to be a charismatic church. People would shout and they'd raise their hands and dance and all that kind of stuff when I'd make a point like that. I don't know what happened. All right. Number three about defining saved. Okay, we told you there's three dimensions. The first one is that he chose us before the foundation of the world. He saved you before the foundation of the world. Then there's that he included you in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So that's when you were saved. Number three, the personal present tense, ongoing experience that when we partner with God's will in our lives. That's being saved. Look, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. He doesn't leave us to ourselves to work it out. He's even giving you the right desires to love him, to trust him, to live for him. See, the evangelical idea of rebirth or being born again comes really from the spiritualist idea from medieval mysticism and radical reformers. They viewed new birth or regeneration as primarily an inner experience, one the individual believer had to go ask for and personally go through. Here's what T.F. Torrance says, a Scottish Protestant theologian and minister. And I quote, we'll have it on the screen. During my first week of office as moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, when I presided at the Assembly's Gaelic service, a Highlander asked me when I had been born again. I still recall his face when I told him that I had been born again when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and rose again from the virgin tomb, the firstborn from the dead. <laughs> When he asked me to explain, I said, this Tom Torrance is hid with Christ in God and will be revealed only when Jesus Christ comes again. He took my corrupt humanity in his incarnation, sanctified, cleansed, and redeemed it, giving it new birth in his death and resurrection. In other words, our new birth, our regeneration, our conversion are what has taken place in Jesus Christ himself. So that when we speak of our conversion or our regeneration, we're referring to our sharing in the conversation or regeneration of humanity brought about by Jesus in and through himself for our sake. In a profound and proper sense, therefore, we must speak of Jesus Christ as constituting in himself the very substance of our conversation so that we must think of him as taking our place even in our acts of repentance and personal decision. For without him also called repentance and conversion are empty. Since a conversion in that truly evangelical sense is a turning away from ourselves to Christ, it calls for a conversion from our interned notions of conversion 
to one which is grounded and sustained in Jesus himself. Dear ones, this makes Jesus more the center than any other theology. All right, number three, let's define the announcement of good news. People talk about being born again as the good news, the message, the gospel. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. You remember the angel appeared, right, to the shepherds. He said, don't be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news. Watch this. Good news that brings great joy to how many people? Church people? Those who pray the prayer? Those who go through the four spiritual laws? How many? All people. Hmm, doesn't seem to have worked that way. So here's Western evangelicalism, all right, in a nutshell. Popularized, by the way, by Billy Graham, which I have the highest respect for. And Billy Graham said some things in his later years to clarify what he wished he would have taught and what he wished he would have changed during his years of crusade ministry, by the way. Here's how it goes. Here's the standard Western evangelical idea of being born again. Jesus introduced the possibility of salvation. You've been invited to receive Jesus into your life. First, you must repent of everything you presently are doing, defined in the Bible as wrong. You mean our interpretation of the Bible, by the way. Uh, and then turn from it. When you do, Jesus will save you. But don't go back, turn or question, because to do so jeopardizes your salvation. If we, the team, the tribe, the group, don't witness the fruit that should be there according to the Bible, our interpretation of the Bible, then it's obvious you weren't truly born again in the first place. Dear ones, I know of what I speak. I grew up under that. I lived that. I was under the burden of that. And I preached it. I preached it for 40 years. See, you don't look that old. I know. <laughs> I know, but I've been preaching, I've been preaching when I was 19. I was in full-time ministry by the time I was 21. Yeah, so however old, do the math. I've been preaching a while. All right, so here, here, let's compare now that idea of being, quote, born again or saved with the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, and of Paul, by the way. And I'm borrowing from Paul Young, writer of The Shack, and a book called Lies We Believe About God. Watch this. Number one, Jesus has already included you in his life. Number one, for he delivered us and saved us, and he called us with a holy calling, not because of our works. We could do nothing to earn this but because of his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Jesus Christ before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9. Number two, you've actually been brought into Jesus' relationship with the Father and into Jesus' anointing in the Holy Spirit, Colossians chapter 1. Your indifferent mindset alienated you from God into a lifestyle of annoyances, hardships, and labors. Yet he has now fully reconciled and restored you to your original design. Genesis, garden. He accomplished this by dying our death in a human body. He fully represented us in order to fully present us again in blameless innocence face to face with God. Point number three, God bless you. Do you have some water, sweetie? Okay. Point number three here about the good news as Jesus 
walked it, taught it. The good news is that Jesus did this, watch this, without your vote. Jesus did all of this without your vote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Believing it or not won't make it any less or more true. What or who saves me? Either God did this in Jesus or you have to save yourself. Next point. If in any way you participate in the completed act of salvation accomplished in Jesus, then your part is what actually saves you. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 2. This is how grace rescued us. While we were yet in a state of deadness and indifference in our deviations, we were co-quickened together with Christ. We had nothing to do with it. Grace freed us once and for all from the lies that we believed about ourselves under the performance-driven system and now defines our authentic identity. We are co-included in his resurrection. We are also co-elevated in his ascension to be equally present in the throne room of the heavenly realm where we were co- See, that's what Jesus was trying to get through to Nicodemus. There's another realm. You've got to become aware. Uh, Nicodemus, this isn't about being born again. This is about being born from above. Having Christ change the way you think about God's love. Verse 8, your salvation is not a reward for good behavior. It was a grace thing from start to finish. You had no hand in it. Even the gift to believe simply reflects his faith. If this could be accomplished through any action of yours, then there would be a ground for boasting. Next point. Saving faith is not our faith, but the faith of Jesus. God does not wait for my choice and then save me. Look at this, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life that I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God has acted decisively and universally for all humankind. Now our daily choice is to either grow and participate in that reality or continue to live in the blindness of our own independence called sin or bondage or whatever you are experiencing outside of a life filled with God's love. It is there. All right, let me wrap this up. I've got one minute. Self-imposed. Because <laughs> we do want to give some time for Q&A here. All right. Our premise, our thesis was, you must be born again to be saved. You already are. God did it. Before the world began, during his death, burial, and resurrection, and sense in the present as you submit to the Father's will. But it's not your faithfulness, it's His. All right, all non-Christians then will go to hell. Well, you know, we've kind of just already dealt with that. Because it's not a we and they. Who did He come to save? 
Who did God reconcile to himself? Who? The world, all, everybody. So let's quit creating these camps. Now there are some who are living outside of God's blessing as we said. Our choice is to either grow and participate in that reality or continue to live in the blindness of our own independence. Brian Zahn says this in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Over a millennia, hell has picked up all kinds of popular imagery and common assumptions that get read back into the biblical text. In other words, many concepts of hell are not derived from the text, but they're read into the text. Jesus actually did not teach eternal punishment. Not in the original language of the New Testament. And the consuming fire that's talked about this and talked about there in those texts is not punishment, it's not eternal torment, it's not the expression of eternal anger, it isn't God finally reaching his end and grace has run out, it isn't a contemptuous rage by God for those who don't love him. I mean, you'd think to listen to some people when they talk about the cross and the wrath of God and you've got to get saved and all that, it's like God says, I love you so much. I'm going to send my son. I love you so much. But if you don't love me back, I'll torture you forever with burning fire. Jeff, show him these scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Now, we're supposed to do that, but not God. God's going to punish his enemies in eternal conscience. But he tells us to love them. He's going to punish them. We're, we're supposed to love them. Now, we're supposed to love them because why? It's like heaping coals of fire. What? Our love is like a fire that brings change. Your loving people, when they're not being loving, is like a fire that gets inside their head and brings about change. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong, which is exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But boy, I'm going to. If you offend me, if you abuse me, if you cross the line... Isaac the Assyrian, one of the early church fathers, like we're talking back to 150, 200 A.D., said this, and I quote, I weigh that those who are suffering in hell are suffering in being scourged by love. It is totally false to think that the sinners in hell are deprived of God's love. Love is a child of the knowledge of truth and is unquestionably given commonly to all. But love's power acts in two ways. It torments sinners, while at the same time, it delights those who have life or live in according with it. I like that. It says I don't have to be stodgy and stuck in a particular view. I can allow God's love to tell me there's possibilities, even for people that aren't, quote, 
Christian. How many of you recognize the word Diedrich, or the name Diedrich Bonhoeffer, right? Famous German theologian. He only lived to be in his late 30s, 35, mid-30s, and wrote what is by all standards many of the theological texts that are on the desk of every pastor and in the library of every Christian college, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this, and I quote, In the body of Jesus Christ, God is united with humankind. All humanity is accepted by God, and the world is reconciled to God. In the body of Jesus Christ, God took on all the sin of the world, and he bore it. There is no part of the world, no matter how lost, no matter how godless, that has been or not been accepted by God in Jesus Christ and reconciled to God. God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but humans, human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, namely real human beings, the real world, this is for God the ground of unfathomable love. God establishes a most intimate unity with this. God becomes human, a real human being while we exert ourselves to grow beyond our humanity, to leave the human behind, God becomes human. And we must recognize that God wills that we be human, real human beings. While we distinguish between pious and godless, good and evil, noble and base, God loves real people without distinction. God has no patience with our dividing the world and humanity according to our standards and imposing ourselves as judges over them. God leads us into absurdity by becoming a real human being and a companion of sinners, therefore forcing us to become the judges of God. God stands beside the real human being and the real world against all their accusers. So God becomes accused along with human beings and the world and this and thus judges and becomes accused. <laughs> he took our place. And that's what communion is all about. This little cup, God became the accused. And in Christ, you are born again. But not just you, your friends, your family, that coworker that's difficult to be with. Could we, Jeff, please put a little bit behind this? Thank you so much. Let's take it now. Jesus, during supper with his disciples, took the bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Aren't you glad? Everything, even your faith, 
is his faith. Aren't you glad? Let's take and eat. Wow. He didn't leave us to ourselves. It's his faithfulness. Wow, 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 wow. All right. After supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know what he did? He rose from the grave. His erection, his resurrection is proof that God did it. He joined heaven with earth. He takes my life and joins it with his. He says, Nicodemus, <laughs> you must be born from above. You need a new way of thinking about God. He loves you unconditionally. And here's the proof. Let's take and drink. Nina's going to come and share a couple of prayer requests. Again, if you have any, we'd invite you to text us at this number, 720-878-3323. Type it into the type it into the chat. Ralph, our good church member in Switzerland, writes, he's been watching as he does weekly. He says only eighteen percent of people not born again or Protestant describe born again Christians as favorable or somewhat favorable. 9% if they do not know one. Born again does not have a good reputation. Exactly right. 